Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in the United States is at an all-time high. The White House, therefore, recently launched a national strategy to counter it, the first national strategy against anti-Semitism in the history of the United States. We discuss this today with an established journalist from the Jewish press. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. I'm the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, thinedgeofthewedge.com. I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, a small town outside Chicago, which was not a Holocaust community. And yet in September, 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II and the Holocaust, my US Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this changed our lives as Jews forever. Ron Compias is an award-winning journalist and currently the Washington bureau chief of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which serves Jewish community newspapers and media around the world. Ron worked previously at the Associated Press and at the Jerusalem Post, and as a journalist, he was based in many places in the world. Ron, it's great to have you on our show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a question, a basic question, which is, how do you relate personally to anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I grew up in Montreal. I was exposed to a little bit in school because I grew up in a, there are a lot of Jewish neighborhoods in Montreal that were then, but I grew up in one that wasn't really so Jewish. And you, I faced the, the traditional Christian Protestant, Christian Catholic type of anti-Semitism but nothing too serious. Um, and now I relate to it professionally. I mean, it's something I write about right now. I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm covering the trial of uh, the gunman accused of killing uh, 11 people in a, in a synagogue here, in the Tree of Life synagogue in, in 2018. And so there's, as a reporter, you always, you always have to try at least to maintain a kind of uh, a professional distance. And so uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like I, I wrote an essay after the um, the attack in Charlottesville in 2017 by neo-Nazis. And uh, it, I wrote about how I was repeatedly confronted with uh, sort of uh, anti-Semitic remarks and epithets, because for some reason people could tell I was Jewish, at least not the Nazis or the people who were marching could tell I was Jewish. And, and I just remember like the first thing that was triggered was like, well, this is curious. Why do they think I'm Jewish? What are they talking about? Uh, how does this relate to why they're here? In other words, I didn't take it personally. Uh, I wasn't afraid. I was just uh, interested. So, I mean, and, and that's just something you build up as a as a journalist, I think, over the years, not, not, not just in terms of hostility towards Jews, which one I encounter, but hostility towards Americans. If you're in, in a place that you know, that is uh, is hostile towards America or hostility towards journalists, which uh, unfortunately is something that happens a lot more now, but you don't take it personally that they're being hostile towards you as a journalist. You you factor it into the story. Thank you. Um, Ron, the national strategy consists, the national strategy uh, of the White House and uh, 
that was made together with the various Jewish organizations uh, and representatives of the Jewish community in America, uh, that national strategy of the United States consists of four pillars. Uh, one is education about anti-Semitism and about Jewish, the Jewish American heritage, uh, education of that in schools and elsewhere. Uh, the second pillar is increased security measures uh, at Jewish buildings. The third pillar is the reverse to reverse the normalization of anti-Semitism online and offline. And the fourth pillar is uh, building an intercommunity solidarity and action against hate. Are there certain measures within those pillars that you think are remarkable? Um, I don't know if remarkable is the word, but I would say certainly innovative. I think that what was uh, was interesting, at least, Nina, now it's almost like it's become part of the conversation, but what was interesting in May when this was revealed and it was revealed how comprehensive we we had an idea journalists said they that that is a few days beforehand about what it was going to look like is how comprehensive comprehensive it is how they see is uh, anti-semitism not uh, the government the uh, the Biden administration sees anti-semitism not just merely as uh, combating bias against the Jews but as uh, you know creating a more holistic environment in which Jews uh, can feel comfortable. And I just like, for instance, like I, I remember getting an invitation to the um, a Department of Commerce, sorry, uh, I think it was the, no, it was the Department of Agriculture uh, event on, uh, on for Jewish American Heritage Month. And normally I would have like even been surprised to find out, you know, like I know that there have been obviously Jews involved in agriculture, but like, why are they emphasizing it at the Department of Agriculture? But it wasn't just that they were like thinking of at the time and they didn't in the end, but they were thinking of it at the time, talking what they were going to do for the anti-Semitism leg of it. So I just asked around in the administration, what does, what is, what is the Department of Agriculture going to do about anti-Semitism? And they said, well, just, you know, making, uh, food distribution to the poor, making it more kosher friendly, making Jews feel feel more comfortable, making sure that they get that there's kosher food available for the poor is something that the you know the Department of Agriculture is responsible for. So um, I, I think that's like the the holistic aspect of this uh, rollout was what was made it remarkable, I guess, in, in a sense. You also wrote about uh, the importance of holding. Um... Uh, online platforms, social media platforms, uh, responsible for um, hosting anti-Semitic uh, speech on uh, online on social media. Is that correct? Yes, there. Um, this is part of. Uh, I mean, one of the things about this platform is that, like uh, every government, every administration program, they try to make it. In, they 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 try to add things into their initiatives that reflect programs that are underway or initiatives that are underway. And the Biden administration is very much about trying to make um, social media platforms more responsible uh, for uh, controlling misinformation or for controlling bias. It was actually coincidentally, not having anything to do with this, dealt a blow by a federal judge's ruling last week uh, that, uh, that departments of government may not be in touch on a vast range of issues with social media co companies. And that's, the government's gonna challenge that. We'll see where that goes, but certainly, yes, they want to, um, 
uh, one one of the legs of their uh, of their ambitions with social media is to reduce the uh, the possibility of incitement towards uh, violence. You know, here in Pittsburgh, that's playing a factor. It's a factor in the uh, uh, in what's going on here. The um, the gunman was radicalized online. He was radical, and not just online. He was radicalized in a social media site, Gab. Uh, that was uh, established in part because its founder, who's an acknowledged anti-Semite, uh, was frustrated by the limits that Twitter, before it was owned by Elon Musk, was putting on uh, on hate speech, on um, uh, uh, on far right rhetoric, and so uh, yeah, that's definitely part of the uh, initiative here to try and uh, uh, and that's why I think that the you know the the the. Uh, th that's one element of the the, um, the strategy that's uh, controversial because social media companies, you know, while they're happy to consult with the government on um, on on combating disinformation, they don't want uh, they don't want any legislation. They don't want any enforcement uh, the, for First Amendment issues for business issues. They're they're resisting that. So it's it's not clear yet uh, whether. Um the social media platforms will actually um, will restrict the speech on on their platforms the the anti-semitic speech speech so yeah i think so yeah i think this is just an ongoing conversation there yeah. is uh, it's like it's a pendulum right before like after uh, after what happened here in pittsburgh in 2018 there was definitely a swing towards more controls ahead after the, the January 6th riots in Washington, uh, right right before uh, President Biden's inauguration, there was definitely a, a uh, after and before, but especially after there was a trend towards controlling misinformation. Now there's a swing away with it as you're getting, um, especially uh, conservatives who perceive this as going too far, as shutting them down. And you're getting, you know, Elon Musk renewed, re removed a lot of the protections that were on uh, Twitter and um, and you're and you're getting Republicans. Uh, part of the reason this this judge, this federal judge, blocked uh, the the federal government from communicating with uh, uh, with platforms is because there were uh, uh, the complaints brought by two states attorney generals from the South, both both Republicans, who are saying that the government is overly involved in uh, moderating social media. So it goes back and forth. So. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the government, how even the government can communicate this now, given the uh, injunction, uh, the federal injunction. Before we talk about the definition of anti-Semitism that was included in this broad program, could you just give us a little bit of background about how this happened? Yes, anti-Semitism is incredibly on the rise here and around the world, but why now? Why did the government, the White House, decide to actually come out with this policy? Uh, I think. Well, first of all, I mean, it's it's just been it's a, it's an interesting evolution, actually, because Biden in his uh, in his first speech announcing that he was going to uh, run in 2019. Uh, if you look at that ad, it's not a speech; it's more like an ad. You you see the people marching in Charlottesville, and he says, and uh, I don't think there's any reason to doubt him because it's such a sweet, generous way to uh, to announce a, a a presidential run. He says that he was like. You know, he'd been uh, uh, thinking about running in 2016, and then his son Bo died, and uh, he decided that was it. He was retiring from po politics. I think uh, Jill Biden, his wife, was also exhausted from politics, and uh, then he saw the um, the 2017 march in Charlottesville, 
and he saw President Trump equivocating about condemning uh, he did condemn the uh, uh, the neo-Nazis and then he kind of didn't condemn them. He kept on going back and forth. And uh, I think Biden was just moved by seeing the neo-Nazis, seeing what he thought was Trump's failed response to respond to the neo-Nazis. And that moved him uh, to run. And so that became like a critical part of, you know, you you campaign and then you want to implement some of your campaign promises. It's a, it's, it's a, I think it's a natural tendency for anybody. You know, same thing happened with Trump in 2017. And then, so it became uh, essential to his mission, but he had a more broad um, view of, uh, or at least his administration did of, of bias. And so in, I think September of last year, there was a uh, a summit against hate or something like that at the White House. And it was, uh, you know, it was fairly ecumenical. They talked about uh, all the different types of hatreds that are out there. And th- I think that one of the things that made Jewish groups uncomfortable was that that it's, when you do that, it, dilute, it dilutes to a certain extent uh, the focus because every type of hatred is different. It has different sources and they have a lot of common sources as well. And in some ways it makes sense to coalesce, but in some cases you you don't want to be ignored. And so one thing that wasn't addressed uh, at that summit of hate so much was uh, anti-Semitic uh, violence or attacks or hatred that comes not from the far right wing. That was like the, you know, the, that's what was focused. And it was, it was kind of like anomalous because uh, one of the guests, you know, one of the stars of that event was Charlie Citron, the, the rabbi who had uh, held at bay or had managed to get away for his congress in Texas in Colleyville, Texas. And that that perpetrator was somebody who had been radicalized through, um, uh, you know, militant Islam, which is neither right nor left, but it's, it's still, it's not right wing. And here you are at a conference, it's like focusing almost exclusively on the right. And another person was Joseph Borgen, who had been attacked by, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian activists and, and, and knocked unconscious almost by pro-Palestinian activists. Again, that's not coming from the right. Uh, and so there was a sense, I think, and I, uh, there was Jewish organizational pushback against the White House saying, you've got to be more focused. And so December, in December, the Jewish second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, convened a roundtable. And what's interesting about that roundtable, it was much broader. You had like uh, visibly Orthodox Jews, like representing organizations like Agudat Israel and Orthodox Union, talking about attacks on Jews in the Northeast that weren't necessarily coming from the right. They weren't coming from the left. They were just coming. And so like talking about why those things were were happening, uh, you had Julia Jassy, a young woman who's started a campus group. I think it's called Israel on Campus to talk about uh, that that uh, focuses on um, anti-Semitic bias, not, you know, not just from Israel related, but a lot of it is Israel related, which the Biden administration hadn't dealt with. And she was there and she was talking about this. So I, and, so they had the task force. They had like uh, what was interesting. I, I really thought, and like uh, they allowed us, they allowed media in for the very first half hour or so of that mm-hmm. roundtable, and then they had it by themselves. And I talked to people inside, and I saw it myself. Is like Susan Rice was there, other top government officials were there, and they weren't talking. They were like really taking notes, like really scribbling. You know, <laughs> one guy on his laptop, one, and so they were taking it seriously. I think, and so that's what this is: is a culmination of is like a more holistic, uh, a, a broader way of dealing with anti-Semitism and just saying it's coming from the um, from the far right. And that's and by dealing with the far right, we're going to deal with anti-Semitism. It's not that's not necessarily going to happen. Just as, as, uh, and I think that this is a kind of realization of that. So it's it's it, it, it's 
anti-Semitism in its full spectrum that is right. taken into account in this strategy you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like at least tried to. I mean, there have been some criticisms of it, but yes, that is definitely the, uh, the aim I was going to ask you to say that again to make sure our listeners that if we were able to take it to erase the far right, it still wouldn't solve the problem. I think that's really important that we on on Evelyn and I try and with our different guests to uh, share with our listeners. So let's talk about the definition of anti-Semitism that was included in the policy or not included. Different Jewish organizations, you know, among themselves or publicly uh, push for one definition or or another. So let's talk about that definition. Right. So they, um, um, I have it in front of me. Uh, well, first of all, they have they ha- they had their own definition. They wrote their own definition before getting to the outside um, definitions. Anti-Semitism is a stereotypical and negative perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred of Jews. It is prejudice, bias, hostility, discrimination, or violence against Jews for being Jews or Jewish institutions or property for being Jewish or perceived as Jewish. Anti-Semitism can manifest as a form of racial, religious, national origin, and or ethnic discrimination, bias, or hatred, or a combination thereof. However, anti-Semitism is not simply a form of prejudice or hate. It's also pernicious conspiracy theory that often features myths about Jewish power and control. And then it goes into the outside uh, definitions. And it talks about the most prominent is a non-legally binding working definition of anti-Semitism adopted in 2016 by the 31 member states of the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which the United States has embraced. In other words, they're not saying this is our definition, but they've embraced the definition. And the reason that's important is because the uh, so-called IRA, that's, you know, the acronym is IRA, definition outlines six of uh, 11 possible expressions of anti-Semitism, outlines 11 possible expressions of anti-Semitism, and six of them have to do with anti-Israel bias. It doesn't say that every form of uh, criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, but it says that these six are. And and then it says, in addition, the administration welcomes and appreciates the Nexus document, uh, which is something that came out a couple of years ago, and there's a whole, you know, evolution of that and why that happened. But what the Nexus document essentially does is IRA was conceived like it, it's based on uh, stuff that the American Jewish Committee was doing in the 2000s and like a decade and a half ago to advise, advise the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, of which the United States is a member, on how best to identify anti-Semitism. And it wasn't supposed to be legally binding. It was just to give ideas of how there is anti-Semitism and often, especially in Europe, that anti-Semitism can be expressed through a a veneer of anti-Israel activism. And so it's the, the authors of Nexus thought that that was vague, that there was too much room in there. And that kind of coincided with a, a criticism from the left that the IRA is used as a bludgeon against people who criticize Israel. But I, you know, I'm one of the authors of the Nexus definition is David Schraub. He's an academic in Western, in, in Seattle and Washington state. And I don't, I don't think that was his motive so much to sort of limit uh, where, you know, anti-Semitism is in Israel and Israel intersect. It was more trying to make it more specific. And so he came up with the Nexus document to sort of try and fill in of the gaps that the IRA document left. So that was, and there are people in the administration 
or who are close to the administration who helps to draft uh, the Nexus document. So naturally it was gonna be part of their, um, there were people on this task force who helped to draft. I think one of them at least uh, is is Matt Nasanchik who had been a Jewish liaison for the Obama administration has gone on to other sort of Jewish organizational stuff. So he was one of the drafters both of the Nexus. So that's where it came in. And there are organizations uh, and uh, what's interesting, I think, is that most of the organizations from left to center right accepted this definition. The left was satisfied because which definition? Ira, which definition? The, the definition as it's outlined here. In other words, they embrace IRA, they note and welcome Nexus, and they note other efforts. The left was satisfied because it's not it's not tied permanently to IRA. It's embracing it, but not and saying it's not the only definition, which is what they wanted. The, the right is satisfied, the center and the right are satisfied because IRA is in there. And so they embrace IRA. But there are critics, there are critics who say that they should have exclusively embraced IRA, but they by not embracing uh and they come mostly from the right wing, these critics, by not exclusively embracing IRA, they're saying uh they're they're being too flexible and they're gonna it's going to allow in uh, anti-Semitism under the guise of anti-Israel criticism, and uh, that it's just not tight enough. So there's a, a, a kind of dis dissatisfaction with that. And, you know, the, a lot of the coverage of this had to do with that. If you'll notice, my story didn't cover that because I thought the innovation here was really that there's a comprehensive uh, strategy to counter anti-Semitism. You're talking about two paragraphs. That's not going to be my obsession. That's not going to be my my story. Right. I'm going to include it. I talked about it, but I'm not going to, uh, I'm not, I wasn't going to make it the whole story because I don't think it is the, the whole story. At least there was unity, enough unity in the Jewish community to get to a national strategy together with the government. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. And then, of course, it's not ideal to all the all the, all the participants in that. Right. Right. You're, we're talking about Jews. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking. But <laughs> right. does Nexus stand for something, or is it just a name they came up with? I think it's just a name they they came up with. I mean, they, what I was going to say is that I think the political evolution of uh, of uh, there's something called the Jerusalem document that came out that was at this uh, almost the same time that was. The, anti-IRA. It was conceived to be against IRA because of the way IRA talked about anti-Israel uh, um, sentiments. And so uh, people knew that that was coming out. And I think the Nexus people, I mean, I know the Nexus people, one reason they got they got their definition out literally a week before I, the Jerusalem declaration came out, because they wanted to neutralize it to a degree. They wanted to say, hey, here's a way we can all agree on Israel Without saying Ira is bad, and so that's was that was part of the genesis of uh, of Nexus, and so it was it was uh, definitely you know academics like David who are on the center left, but who also have a very you know have a a commitment to the idea that certainly that you can express um, anti semitism under the guise of anti in certain cases under the guise of anti Israel sentiment. Very that's yeah. very important. Right. So, wrong. Um, the Council of American Islamic Relations is one of the intercommunity partners uh, mentioned in the plan. You wrote, right. be, you wrote because this organization has always had harsh criticism on Israel. It right. is. It is also known that a U.S. District Court judge found there was an ample there was ample evidence that terror, which is the abbreviation for Council of American Islamic Relations was associated with Hamas. Right. On, on whose initi initiative did CARE become a partner in our national strategy against anti-Semitism? 
and what will CARE's role be? Uh, it's it's interesting. I'm, uh, they're not mentioned in this document. They're mentioned in a, in other literature that came around the document. But yeah, they're they're part of the strategy. I mean, my best guess is how care how it came about. First of all, care is kind of like uh, they're 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 in fact they've been emphatic for the last fifteen years that any association they had with Hamas in the late eighties, early nineties is long behind them. Um, and so that's you know so you, you know I don't know to what degree one wants to take that into account, but that's what they say. I think the, the more current problem with them is how their criticism of Israel, how harsh it is, how ne negating it is of, um, of, you know, of the Jewish character of Israel. And I think that's what upsets a lot of Jewish organizations now. Um, on the other hand, they've managed to position themselves, you know, and just like within the Jewish community, I think there are a lot of Jews who are not happy with the organizations that claim to speak for the Jews. There are a lot of Muslims who are not happy that CARE speaks for Muslims, uh, and they, but uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But they still, they've managed to position themselves because they have chapters in every state as a credible voice for Muslim Americans. And so... Um, one of the thing that this thing that this uh, document, the White House document, reiterates is a, is a commitment to um, bringing funding for um, securing nonprofit institutions up to three hundred and sixty million dollars. And this is this funding started. I remember when it started in two thousand and five because there had been a, a, an increase in in attacks on Jewish institutions. And it was, uh, you know, that was never designated solely for Jewish institutions, but it was originally $15 million in 2005. And Jewish institutions, the Jewish organizations that had lobbied it for it, um, were most adept at getting the funds because they understood it. They're the ones that actually written, more or less, written legislation. It was the Agudat Israel Orthodox Union and Jewish Federations of North America. And... Um, and one thing, as as hate crimes started to rise, and as they started to target not just Jewish institutions but uh, Muslim institutions, mosques, and uh, and you know, and black churches. In two thousand and fifteen, you had the attack on the Mother Emanuel Church in in South Carolina. Um, uh, what was interesting is that you had uh, these non-Jewish institutions coming to Jewish institutions and saying, "How do we apply for these grants? Because we need these grants as well." And and you had the Jewish institutions lobbying for the increase in funds. And now it's going to be at three hundred and sixty million dollars, in part because of the vulnerability of these institutions. Uh, and so I think yeah, Ma Care comes into it not because they're going to be advocating for anything on the Jewish side, but because of the holistic need to secure. Uh, because that's exactly where they're mentioned. They're mentioned in terms of getting the money. And like the, there's a specific um, issue with Muslim institutions. I, I attended once a seminar uh, that include representatives from uh, from Jewish organizations, from Muslim organizations, and from Black uh, Christian organizations at the FBI headquarters on um, on how to protect oneself. And so like the Jewish organizations, and this has become like, you know, it's become Bible for the Jewish organizations. There's a guy, Michael Masters, who's, who has this security community network. And he he said, like, one of the things he said is that contact your local police and coordinate with them. Make sure you know who to call. Make sure they know you. Just meet with them and do all those things that are good. Because when you have an attack on your institution, it's just going to make things much quicker. It's just going to get you. It's going to get the first responders out there quicker. You're going to have. They're going to be able to train you on how to defend an, an attack, and that's important because you know if you look here at the 
uh, at the Tree of Life synagogue, there was training that actually presented prevented greater uh, casualties. And then I remember like one of the, a couple of the Muslim folks, but I don't think they were from care. They were from other groups. I said, well, that's a really hard sell in our communities. We don't, you know, we don't trust the police because they, 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 after 9-11, they came and they monitored us and they looked at us and there's just a lot of, not a lot of trust between uh, Muslim communities and the police. So I think that what the government is made me doing here is um, getting care uh, which is actually one of the groups that's more identified with antagonism towards the government, to go into Muslim communities and say, yes, we do have to cooperate to a degree with the police if we're going to be protected. Uh, so I think that's where it comes from. And it's just bringing, you know, like there's been criticism also because they, they to- do talk about Islamophobia and other types of bigotry. And like, why aren't we just focusing on anti-Semitism? I think well, from what I heard from somebody who's inside the administration is that it's just a, it's a typical you know, what looks bad from one side can look good from the other side. So from within the government, it's like, why would we spend money like doing this in silos when we can just do the, uh, this coordination all together, at least in terms of securing religious institutions. And so that's where they're, um, so that's where they're coming from. On the other hand, it is, like I said, it's like, this is a group that um, uh, issues like wildly, you know, if it's not anti-Semitic, it's wildly one-sided assessments of what went, just went on in Janine in the West Bank in terms of Israel, is raids there, which is which Israel sees as necessary to protect. When, you know, Israel has suffered attack, terrorist attacks over the last year and Israel sees it. And, uh, you know, and then CARE just uses the most biased, uh, uh, obscure, obscurantist language to describe those attacks. And so, of course, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to be in the... Uh, in the same uh, boat as care. But what's interesting is that ha- it's happened sometimes. It's it's like, it's, uh, you know, Ilan Omar, I don't think she's affiliated with care, but of course she's like- She a, is, she is. She is, okay. So she's she's a Muslim American Congresswoman who's provoked a lot of controversy because her views on Israel and backing the boycott. But one of the first things she did was uh, lead the a successful effort to get a rule change done on, on religious wear in Congress. Who is working with her behind the scenes on that? Agudat Israel. It's like it's not that unusual that these people have such. And then the Supreme Court decision just now uh, on a, um, uh, you know, that had actually wall-to-wall support, left to right, not just in the Jewish community and the broader community, so that allowed that allowed a, um, a U.S. postal worker to take off a Christian Sabbath because he was an evangelical, and he, uh, and so uh, Neil Gorsuch, I think it was, inciting in, in writing one of the current occurrences on that opinion which like I said, was welcomed across the board. He cited the Orthodox Union amicus brief in one case about why this would be a great decision for Orthodox Jews because they need more flexibility for the workplace. And then he cited care uh, amicus brief in the other case. So it's like, sometimes in America, you're gonna get strange bread bedfellows as we know. And I think that's uh, right. that explains a lot of it. Yeah, I, I was wondering because as you heard in my introduction, I'm from Europe, and um, we, we we've seen uh, radical uh, Muslims apologize for saying I'm not no longer radical, and then they got important positions in 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 city council advising of anti anti radicalization, and later on it turned out they had not really stepped away from radicalism. So. You know, it's 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 really, I find it's uh, a risk, yeah. to yeah. to have care, look into your uh, security measures, etc. Um, yeah, and 
Because, uh, yeah, you know. yeah, no, I understand. Go, go ahead. Yeah, so so I was wondering who whose initiative this was, but it's it's the initiative of the government, from what I understand. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, All yeah. right. As we're coming close to the end, I think in we'll give you your last thoughts. I do think we. I'd like to know your opinion. Is this going to make a difference? I mean, it's really nice. There's money behind it, but is anyone really going to do anything? Uh. I think yeah yeah I think it's uh, it's already making a difference to an extent I think that yes like they uh, if you like I said if like I said if you looked at the groups across the board how welcoming they were of it uh, just in terms of creating a more uh, you know Jewish where Jewish friendly uh, atmosphere within the government and the federal government is a vast instrument and the people it affects are a vast instrument and if you're like th- if you're getting more people to think in terms of like uh, what is anti-Semitism what is a good way to just integrate Jews and 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 to make them feel comfortable. Then it, you know it makes that uh, that difference. Government is like it's it's a bully pulpit to a degree. Even if something if you know you don't see the results of the, the practical results of some things for years, you do have the rhetoric. And so to that degree, I think it it does and will um, uh, it will make a difference. I mean, to a degree that you know it makes a difference in stemming it, even with that awareness. And as wonderful as that awareness is, um, y- you know, it's just. It's very satisfying, I think, when you encounter a group of students who who know what the Holocaust is and have a sensitive understanding of it. Does it actually stop that minority of students who are going to be anti-Semitic anyway? I don't know. I don't know. If, like you know, to, does do you get like actual reductions in in anti-Semitic behavior? Uh, I, I don't know if that ever happens. What, however much education you put out there, I think the education is good. It's important to have out there. I don't know if it has an effect on 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 actual making Jews more secure. What does have an effect on making Jews more secure, I think is definitely the um, the uh, nonprofit security grants program, which is, like I said, they mentioned there's a, they're gonna advocate, it was pre-existing number, but they're gonna advocate for the $360 million go towards the, um, the program. But not um, only to Jewish buildings, right? Not only to Jewish institutions, but because like I said, those organizations have begun to realize that they, uh, they need security as well, and like and the Jewish organizations, like I said, are 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 training them in how to apply for these grants because they 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 want the uh, the money out there as well. I mean, part of this is saying, yeah, the, we need this more for Jewish organizations. So, and we need this for everybody. Evelyn, if you don't, do you have a last question? Otherwise, I'm going to ask Ron for his last. Well, I, I was wondering, in in addition to to Phyllis' last question, what, for instance, will Jewish students notice uh, from this uh, the, what kind of effect will they experience from this strategy you think you know they're on campus of high school or college and uh, a lot of aggressive anti Zionist propaganda is, is coming towards them and their peers um, which is sometimes generalized towards an aggressive approach to Jews, towards Jews in general. What, what, what do you think they will experience as an effect from this strategy? Again, I think it's like the the bully pulpit. I think that if you have a federal government that um, says that uh, that there's certain that that, that bullying uh, a Hillel, for instance, because just because they had like one lecture last year that featured an Israeli speaker or something, and then sort of excluding the Hillel, keeping it out of campus life, uh, getting other other, Jew, other sort of campus organizations 
voting not to work with the Hillel or with other Jewish groups. And if you have like a government that says that's unacceptable, um, it makes it easier to sell on the campus. That's that it's unacceptable to you know degree that what that happens over the next year or next five years, we'll see. But now that has become a government policy, uh, and uh, you know it, it had been to a degree a government policy, and now it's like it's a bipartisan government policy because Trump <laughs> included it in a in an executive order I think in 2019, and now it's been consolidated into this that those ideas have been consolidated into this uh, um, into this strategy. In fact, I mean the. Uh, Trump's executive order itself was based on a Obama administration Department of Education order from 2012. I think so. It's, it's like it's just a further consolidation of the of the bully pulpit. And if we want to, and our audience want to follow the status of the implementation of this important plan, uh, where can they best follow this in the in what well, publication? <laughs> oh, JTA.org. <laughs> <laughs> We are no way. We're actually supposed to convene like a, a staff meeting on like how we're going to cover this, uh, but everybody's on vacation because it's <laughs> July. So we're we're going we're to get around to it soon. We're going to try and figure out a, a the way to to figure out like how the org- Jewish organizations are involved, what's being rolled out, what's happening, what's not happening, and uh, and try and get those stories out. Wonderful. So, Elise. yes. Last thoughts. You know, the last thoughts is that. Uh, uh, I think we we all we all have to live our lives and uh, and not be afraid to live our lives and go out. I mean, I think that's been like one of the uh, most important strategies that the Jewish community security organizations have had. They don't want this. They don't want the United States to become Europe. They don't want, you know, um, I just remember like a, a few years ago, I was in Yanina in Greece and there's a Romaniot community there and I might have Romaniot in me and uh it's just such a wonderful thing to read about them, like this ancient Greek Jewish community. And I went up to the synagogue and like just locks and chains everywhere. You couldn't knock on a door, you know, and that you don't want that in the United States. On the other hand, we have to, um, that has to coincide with an awareness of, uh, you know, one of the things that's been coming out of this uh, trial here in Pittsburgh as uh, in a story I just wrote yesterday that we have up today is is that uh, the, the gunman didn't operate in a vacuum. Um, he was radicalized and he was radicalized by an existing community out there that adheres to a very, um, you know, not just a, a white supremacism and anti-Semitism, but a very American brand and stream of white supremacism in America and anti-Semitism as wonderful as this country is as great as its ideals are. It does have those ideas also embedded in its fabric and to be aware of those, like, you know, one of the, one of my thoughts when I was doing this the other week, I was here in Pittsburgh is just, uh, walking up the street past the Lutheran uh, church that said, uh, all welcome, you know, just walk in and worship. You can't have that in a synagogue in the United States. There is no such thing. Um, you have to make an appointment. You have to know, they have to know you at least. Um, if, and the, the, you know, that's, that's a difference. That's absolutely true for, for Jews. I think to a degree, possibly for Muslims, uh, now for for black churches, and I think that it, just to be aware of that and those limitations that we need to uh, that that'll inform how we go forward. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much for taking your time to share with our audience your really important insights. I thank our listeners for listening. Those of you who have not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again Is Now, you can see it on Amazon and YouTube. Very important because what happens in Europe frequently comes here, which it is, and we need to be aware. 
And more information on my play, Thin Edge the Wedge, is at thinedgethewedge.com. And as we end every show, we say, without putting yourself in physical harm, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.